Hey everybody, who's got exciting virus news for you? No, not the coronavirus, that is old news. I'm talking about the varicellar zoster virus, the one that causes chicken pox and shingles, and shingles is what I got a few weeks ago. So I've now recovered from my mild case of shingles, but here's how it worked. The varicella zoster virus that I contracted when I was a child, back then it gave me chicken pox. Uh, I got over that case of chicken pox, all right? But the virus remained inactive and dormant in my system. Dun, dun, dun. So we don't fully understand why the virus sometimes reawakens from that dormant state as we get older, but it does. And most researchers think that stress is at least a trigger for it. And so this week, I'm thinking about how our sin disease lingers in our systems, even when we don't really feel any symptoms. And so I just want to start before we even enter the text and say, no one is immune to the sin disease. We need a vaccine. We need the vaccinator. And honestly, there weren't a whole lot of great images for the vaccinator. So here's a 2021 image from a British Columbia uh, news source saying, hasta la vista, COVID. Uh, hopefully that's true, but we're talking about a more significant virus than either what causes shingles or what causes COVID. We need the sin vaccinator, and that's the title of this week's sermon, and our passage is all of Genesis chapter 7 as we continue our series, In the Beginning, Jesus. So we're going to read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little, and we're going to start with Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. So let me read. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Yikes. Yikes. Why did God plan to wipe the planet of living things and start over? This is a serious question because people don't necessarily trust God to be good. Now, if you know him and have experienced his grace, you feel differently. You know what he's said and you know what he's done in history. You know that God is good. But I hope you also know from personal experience how good God is. The way he has provided for you in ways that you didn't know to want or expect. I feel that way, for example, about my bride, who is just a great person to be around, to talk to, to live with, whether things are hard or whether they're easy. And I've seen how her character has been shaped by God as she has grown closer to him, more dependent upon him, and more faithful and trusting of him. That's all great, but our passage isn't so rosy. Remember this from Genesis 6, the previous chapter, Verse 5, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. What was God's problem with humanity? Did they tip poorly? 
Did they smoke? Did they vote the wrong way? Drink and drive? No, they were rotting from the inside. Genesis 6-5 tells us that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at this time. Okay, and this rotting pear is a nice visual, but notice that Genesis doesn't tell us exactly what the people were doing. It doesn't explain how their evil hearts impacted their behavior and the world around them. The writer, I think, is intentionally not giving us a seat where we have enough information that we think we can rightly judge God's judgment. You follow that? We don't have enough information to do what God did and decide whether they need to be eliminated or not. Instead, all we get is enough information to witness God's grace in the midst of his righteous judgment. And that grace is shown in God's acceptance of Noah back in verse 1. I have found you righteous in this generation. Ha, huh. ASMR, because what an amazing thing to have said about you. Okay, our passage then is contrasting two groups. Noah, on the one hand, is found righteous in God's eyes. We don't know what he's done. The writer doesn't point at what he's done to merit God's favor. God's just found him righteous. And everyone else, on the other hand, is found evil to the core in God's eyes. So God isn't pointing out things that Noah is doing to be acceptable. He's not pointing out specific wrong things everyone else is doing. And that's because God judges the heart. The prophet Samuel was taught this directly by God when he came to anoint the next king and he saw David's older brother and thought, this must be the king that God is anointing. But here's what God told Samuel in reply to Samuel's thought because God can do that. But the Lord said to Samuel, according to 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, but even though our passage doesn't explain how everyone's evil was expressed, and even though scripture describes God as a judge of hearts, Sometimes we get a Sunday school version of the Noah story that makes us think about behavior. I came up with an example of this. I was just thinking about what I'd learned about Noah when I was a kid. And here's an image from a comic booklet that used to be passed out. And if you're above a certain age and were around churches at all, you probably recognize this style. And even if you're younger, they kind of became memeized for a little while, so maybe you've seen them. But this one says, Noah warned them for years, but no one listened. Turn from your wicked ways, says somebody shadowy looking like Noah in a doorway with a ramp. Shut up, Noah, we're sick of you, say some people off, off the screen. There's no God, you're nuts, says someone else. Okay, Fine, we can all make up a scene in our head, but the writer points to 2 Peter 2.5 as substantiation of this. And I thought it was an interesting thing that this is something that's in my head and it's not in Genesis 7. Noah isn't standing in the doorway of the ark preaching to anybody in Genesis. So what does 2 Peter 
2.5 say? Well, I'm going to go back a verse. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, and that's what it says. Okay, so what's wrong with the comic booklet? It indicates that Noah was telling people to stop all their evil, knock off that evil behavior. And I don't think that's the best way to understand what Peter's point is. Genesis didn't say that God's problem was with their behavior. It said it was with, his problem was with their hearts. Okay, and that would mean that Noah preaching righteous behavior wouldn't make any sense. Righteous behavior isn't going to clean up their hearts. Have you ever seen in fiction or in real life an act that looked like kindness turn out to be in reality an act of evil? A stab in the back perhaps. Seen that in workplaces a lot. If the heart is evil, the actions aren't going to do a whole lot of good. Okay, so that's Noah in Genesis. But the point Peter is making is that God can't abide sin. And it doesn't matter if it's angels or humans, God isn't afraid to deal with sin. What sin is, is rebellion against God. So here in Genesis, it's clear that this has gone on for a long time and that God will ultimately not withhold righteous judgment on rebels. Here's another example from the book of Ezekiel. This is about the nation of Israel. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed. Okay, well, that sounds behavioral. And get a new heart and a new spirit. Hmm. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Okay, this isn't turning away from 1% tips. This is a total change of the heart is needed. God is not afraid to deal with rebellion, but God often delays final judgment and consequences. He gives grace. And sometimes that grace is just to bring sin to its fullness and fruition. And sometimes it's an opportunity for people like me and people like you to establish uh, a new relationship with God as he invites us in and we respond. What does Peter mean then as I explain this, that Noah is a preacher of righteousness. I think what he means is that Noah's faithful character preaches godly righteousness to someone, but I think it's to us. Just as evil hearts earn judgment, this faithful heart receives grace, not his good behavior, his faithful heart. What Noah does comes from who Noah is, well, that makes sense. And what you do comes from who you are. Who you are depends in turn on whose you are. Who do you belong to? Who do you love? And only after all that can we read verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Okay. Noah is, in contrast with everybody else, their hearts are evil, his is faithful, and his faithful heart causes a response to God that allows him to do what God commanded. 
what he does is still important, but it's a secondary issue. It's a symptom of the changed heart. This is super consistent with what Genesis has been saying. Let's work backwards from Genesis 7, 5. Okay, we go back to Genesis 6, 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Okay, Genesis 6, 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Uh, what specifically did he do? Well, the one thing that the writer calls out is he walked faithfully with God. What happens in Genesis 6, 8? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? We don't get the answer to that. We don't get the fullness of God's answer to that. What we get is God looked at him and in God's judgment, Noah was righteous. Genesis 6, 5 remember, here's our contrast. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. All right, so that's going backwards. Let's look way forward to where the writer of the book of Hebrews says this. Hebrews eleven seven. by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Okay, so the writer is intentionally linking his righteousness to his faith, just as it appears that Genesis is doing. But wait a minute, how did Noah condemn the world? Was he preaching works of righteousness after all? No. Remember, in his time, Noah is here on one side and the rest of the world is on the other. And the fact that this man apparently doesn't have a completely evil heart says, yes, it can be done. These people are without excuse because somebody is in that situation. He's got a heart that's faithful as God sees it. So how does who you are show in what you do? This is a bigger question than a glib five-second consideration for a takeaway. This is something to reflect over. It gets worse. Who is noticing who you are? Boy, if you're a parent, you are in a deep process like that. What are their conclusions? All right, not just a parent, but if you've got a spouse, if you've got a roommate, you've got an audience a lot of the time. If you've got coworkers with whom you frequently interact, you've got an audience and we're all living in a form of that show, Big Brother. People are observing us all the time and they're drawing conclusions from what we do about who we are. If we claim to belong to God, they're drawing conclusions about him too. If that's not sobering, then you are either a saint or an optimist. Nothing wrong with either of those things. All right, let's continue on to the, the next passage, Genesis 7, 6 through 12. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. Seems like he ought to be comfortably retired, but instead a flood is going to come for the first time. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. There was a, 
a waiting period. There was a warning period. Not a long time, but a little time. Got to get ready. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And it's all happening now. I want you to notice a couple of things. First, this isn't written like a science textbook. The great deep and the heavens aren't exactly technical terms. I only mention this to remind you God didn't bundle up Noah and his family in advance of a natural disaster. Okay? This is a supernatural disaster intentionally brought on by God to cleanse the earth of pervasive evil. The second thing I want to point out is about the animals. What's a clean animal? What's an unclean animal? How do you know? If you look earlier in Genesis, you're not going to get an explanation. Genesis is written to the people of Israel who already know, have already been taught in their contemporary culture, what, what's what? Clean, unclean. Certain animals are acceptable for eating. Certain animals are acceptable for sacrifice. Some are not. But at this point in the narrative, there's no need for the distinction. Like, we're not there yet in Genesis, but God is preserving extra of some. And I just want you to know and remember that God is intentional and purposeful in what he does. He's thinking it all through. And here's an application for you. How are you showing trust or lack of trust in his purposes right now? Are you, are you like Saul uh, encountering Jesus, uh, still kicking against the goads until Jesus has you? How are you showing trust or lack of trust in God's purposes right now? Okay, next little chunk. Genesis 7, verses 13 through 16. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. Well, there's a shelter in place for you, isn't there? That could sound oppressive. It could feel oppressive. Locked into a floating cargo crate with a bunch of animals, including a bunch who aren't your family. Get off me, you little creeping thing. Yeah, I, what a situation. But better this planned for difficulty than being surprised being on the outside. Here's what Jesus said about this situation in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39 say this, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, when the rains, rains, rains came down, 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 and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. 
Church, we are not to live a life preoccupied. There is nothing wrong with eating, drinking, and marriage. Those are good gifts from God. But if we mistake those gifts from God as the point of our lives, we are missing out on what God's bigger intent is, not only for the world around us, but for our own lives. Here's what Jesus said about his intent for our lives. John 10, 9 through 11, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is saying, I came so that you could experience life in a way that can never be experienced unless I am your shepherd, unless you identify as my sheep. If you respond to my voice, if you follow my path, if you are mine. So how is your life more full because you're found in Christ? Who needs to know about it? Look, I've had some long work days recently, and I know that it's possible that I could communicate a dislike for my job, my calling, or even my church at home just because my wife and kids see how I am before I head out at the beginning of the day and how I am when I return, right? And I'll be honest, I I like the talk about the goodness of God days better than the I really hope they fix the gas leak today days in my work. But I want the good days and the bad days to be days in which I rely on Jesus. I don't have any excuse for blame or complaint. I still do it, but I don't have any excuse for it because I've got a shepherd who's good, who gave up his life way more than I'm giving up my life for anyone. All right. Genesis 7, 17 to 24, the last chunk. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth. And all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. So local flood or a global flood... We don't know for sure, but it sure sounds global. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Yep, not diving down to the bottom and getting berries off the trees down under the water and then floating back up to tread water for a long... Yeah, every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. You can be a waterfowl and you're still not going to be able to make it through this. It's a very serious situation that we're in. There was no place to run. 
The lowest places were flooded. The highest places were well below water. And this family, this one family by God's provision and this motley crew of animals are floating in the water, really in the palm of God's gracious hand. There was nowhere to run. We don't always live that way. We don't always live aware that there's nowhere to run. But let's be aware for a moment today. And let me ask, what are you running to instead of to gracious God? What are you finding there? All right, we went to, we went to Second Peter earlier, and I want to go back to it because this historical flood isn't the end of judgment on the earth. So what does Peter say in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7? Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water, by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That sounds hard. It sounds really hard. But if you think about it, we really don't want, do we, a world populated by a bunch of Hitlers and Stalins. At some level, Wherever we draw the line, we know that evil has to be dealt with. It has to finally be eradicated for things to change forever. But we also look out at our world and see many people in whom we can clearly see the image of our common creator, and we want them to be saved from this future judgment. And that's why we all need to be vaccinated. We don't want to hide our chicken pox. We don't want to hide our shingles symptoms. We want the sin virus that lurks inside each one of us to be dormant for sure. But we know there's only one way that that can be dealt with forever. And that way is the new and better ark. That way is the Jesus whose resurrection we celebrated once again this Easter. He is the way to freedom from sin and death. That way is the one, the only one, who can fix the problem forever so that it won't ever come back. Because as we'll see in Genesis and beyond, it, it did come back. It did come back. But God didn't leave us in a perpetual cycle of destruction and starting over. Instead, he said, into this world in which hearts are once again turning to evil, I am going to continue to intervene and I'm going to make a way. And the Hebrew scriptures are full of stories about how the line that would become the line that brought Jesus into being was set aside that a remnant kept cropping up, that there was faithfulness, even though there wasn't always faithfulness, and that his mother and father had a faith that was put to an extreme test 
when, when Jesus came. And look, we talk about Jesus all the time. We talk about the resurrection all the time. Is your heart hard to it? I'm going to pray in a minute, and all I want you to do is just think about how you're responding to Jesus today. Are you in a situation where you want to read this passage and you want to judge whether God judged properly? Are you in a situation where you go, I'm not even sure this God exists. I don't care what Tim says about the certainty of the resurrection. Are you in a situation where you are so upset by what's going on in your life and your world that you can't even feel like you think straight? Are you relying once again on your shepherd, knowing that good or bad, it's going to be him who gets you through? Wherever you are in that spectrum, I just want to remind you one more time, it's a good God who expresses his goodness in grace to this little box of people and animals. And it's to him I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for how you continually preserve a remnant out of a really, really messy and messed up world. And I ask that in our gathering and in our circles of families and friends and coworkers, in our spheres of influence, that you would make us your people, that who we are inside, in our hearts, would be people who are relying on you for everything. And that whether we see it or not, that that would be on display for others. And I ask God that you would animate us in the ways that you want us to move and that you would make us faithful like Noah, that where there are aspects of that sinful heart that are flaring up in our DNA, I pray that you would bring those to light and allow us to confess those to you and to somebody and to turn our back on them and move the other direction. And I pray that you would see us through everything we need to get through. In Christ's name, I pray with gratitude. Amen.